Volume 1, Chapter 6 of the Heidenmauer, or the Benedictines, a legend of the Rhine, by James Fedimore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Joel Kendrick. The Heidenmauer, by James Fedimore Cooper, Volume 1, Chapter 6. Why not? The deeper sinner, better saint. Byron. A wild and plaintive note had been sounded on a horn far in the valley towards the hill of Limburg. This melodious music was of common occurrence, for of all that dwell in Europe, they who inhabit the banks of the Rhine, the Elbe, the Oder, and the Danube with their tributaries are the most addicted to the cultivation of sweet sounds. We hear much of the harshness of the Teutonic dialects and of the softness of those of Latin origin. But, Venice and the regions of the Alps excepted, nature has amply requited for the inequality that exists between the languages by the difference in the organs of speech. He who journeys in those distant lands must, as a rule, expect to hear German warbled and Italian in a grand crash, though exceptions are certainly to be found in both cases. But music is far more common on the vast plains of Saxony than on the Campagna Felice, and it is no uncommon occurrence to be treated by a fair-haired postillion of the former country, as he slowly mounts a hill, with airs on the horn that would meet with favor in the orchestra of a capital. It was one of these melancholy and peculiar strains which now gave the signal to the spies of Count Emic that his clerical guests had quitted the convent. "'Heard ye aught, brothers?' demanded Father Bonifacius of the companions who rode at his side nearly at the same moment that the Lord of Linogen put the same question in his hold. "'That horn spoke in a meaning strain.' "'We may be defeated in our wish to reach the castle suddenly,' returned the monk already known to the reader as Father Siegfried. "'But though we fail in looking into Count Emic's secret with our own eyes, I have engaged one to do that office for us, and in a manner I trust that shall put us on the scent of his designs.' Courage, most holy abbot, the cause of God is not likely to fail for want of succor. When were the meek and righteous ever deserted? The abbot of Limburg ejaculated in a manner to express little faith in any miraculous interposition in behalf of his cure, and he drew about him the mantle that served in some degree to conceal his person, spurring the beast he rode only the quicker, from a fervish desire, if possible, to outstrip the sounds which he intuitively felt were intended to announce his approach. The prelate was not deceived, for no sooner did the wild notes reach the castle than the signal which had caught the attention of its owner was communicated to those within the walls. At the expected summons, there was a general movement among the idlers of the court. Subordinate officers passed among the men, hurrying those away to their secret lodging places who were intractable from excess of liquor and commanding the more obedient to follow. In a very few minutes, and long before the monks, who, however, pricked their beasts to the utmost, had time to get near the hamlet, even all in the hold was reduced to a state of tranquil repose. The castle, resembling the abode of any other powerful baron in moments of profound security. Emic had seen to this disposition of his people in person, taking strict caution that no straggler should appear to betray the preparations that existed within his walls. When this wise precaution was observed, he proceeded with his two companions to take a station near the door of the building more especially appropriated to the accommodation of himself and his friends in order to await the arrival of the monks. The moon had ascended high enough to illuminate the mountainside and to convert the brown towers and ramparts of Hartenburg into picturesque forms relieved by gloomy shadows. 
The signals appeared to have thrown all who dwelt in the hamlet, as well as they who inhabited the frowning hold which overhung that secluded spot, into mute attention. For a few minutes the quiet was so deep and general that the murmuring of the rivulet which meandered through the meadows was audible. Then came the swift clattering of hoofs. "'Our churchmen are in haste to taste thy Rhenish, noble Emic," said Albrecht of Weiderbach, who rarely thought. "'Or is it a party of their sumpter mules that I hear in the valley? "'Were the abbot about to journey to some other convent of his order, "'or were he ready to visit his spiritual master of spires, "'there is no doubt that many such cattle would be in his train. "'For of all lovers of fat cheer, Wilhelm of Venlu, "'who has been styled bonifacius in his baptism of office, "'is he that most worships the fruits of the earth. "'I would he and all his brotherhood were spiritually planted in the Garden of Eden.' They should be well watered with my tears. The wish hath a saintly odor, but may not be accomplished without mortal aid, unless thou hast favor with the prince-elector of Colne, who might haply do thee that service in the way of a miracle. Thou triflest knight in a matter of great gravity, answered Emic, roughly, for notwithstanding his inherited and deadly dislike of the particular portion of the church which interfered with his own power, the Count of Hardenberg had all the dependence on superior knowledge that is the unavoidable offspring of a limited education. The Prince-Elector hath served many noble families in the way thou namest, and he might do honor to houses less deserving of his grace than that of Linogen. But here cometh the abbot and his boon associates. God's curse await them for their pride and avarice. The clattering of the hoofs had been gradually increasing and was now heard even on the pavement of the outer court. For in order to do honor to his guests, the Count had especially ordered there should be no delay or impediment from gate, portcullis, or bridge. "'Welcome and reverence for thy churchly office, right holy abbot,' cried Emic, from whose lips had just parted the malediction, advancing officiously to aid the prelate in dismounting. "'Thou art welcome, brothers both, worthy companions of thy respected and honored chief.' The churchman alighted, assisted by the menials of Hartenburg, which much show of honor on the part of the Count himself and on that of his friends. When fairly on their feet, they courteously returned the greetings. Peace be with thee, son, and with this cavalier and servitor of the church, said Father Bonifacius, signing with the rapid manner in which a Catholic priest scatters his benedictions. St. Benedict and the Virgin take ye all in their holy keeping. I trust, noble Emic, we have not given thee cause of vexation by some little delay. Thou never comest amiss, Father, be it at morn or be it at even. I esteem Hartenburg more than honored when thy reverend head passeth beneath its portals. We had every desire to embrace thee, son, but certain offices of religion that may not be neglected kept us from the pleasure. But let us within, for I fear the evening air may do injury to those that are uncloaked. At this considerate suggestion, Emic, with much show of respect to his guests, ushered them into the apartment he had himself so lately quitted. Here recommenced the show of those wily courtesies which, in that semi-barbarous and treacherous age, often led men to a heartless and sometimes to a blasphemous trifling with the most sacred obligations to effect their purposes, and which in our times has degenerated to a deception that is more measured, perhaps, but which is scarcely less sophisticated and vicious. Much was said of mutual satisfaction at this opportunity of commingling spirits, and the blunt profession of the sturdy but politic baron was more than met by the pretending sanctity and official charity of the priest. 
The abbot of Limburg and his companions had come to the intended feast with vestments that partially concealed their characters. But when the outer cloaks and the other garments were removed, they remained in the usual attire of their order, the prelate being distinguished from his inferiors by those symbols of clerical rank which it was usual for one of his authority to display when not engaged in the ministrations of the altar. When the guests were at their ease, the conversation took a less personal direction. For though rude and unnurtured as his own war horse, as regards most that is called cultivation in our bookish days, Emic of Hartenburg wanted for none of the courtesies that became his rank, more especially as civilities of this nature were held to be worthy of a feudal lord, and in that particular region. "'Tis said, Reverend Abbot," continued the host, pushing the discourse to a point that might favor his own secret views, "'that our common master, the prince-elector, is sorely urged by his enemies, and that there are even fears a stranger may usurp the rule in the noble castle of Heidelberg. Hast thou heard aught of his late distresses, or of the necessities that bear upon his house?' Masses have been said for his benefit in all our chapels, and there are hourly prayers that he may prevail against his enemies. In virtue of a concession made to the abbey by our common father at Rome, we offer liberal indulgences too, to all that take up arms in his behalf. Thou art much united in love with Duke Friedrich, holy prelate, muttered Emic. We owe him such respect as all should willingly pay to the strong temporal arm that shields them. Our serious fealty is due alone to heaven. But how comes it that so stout a baron, once so much esteemed in warlike exercises, and so well known in dangerous enterprises, rests in his doublet at a time when his sovereign's throne is tottering? We had heard that thou wert summoning thy people, Herr Count, and thought it had been in the elector's interest. Friedrich hath not of late given me cause to love him. If I have called my vassals upon me, tis because the times teach every noble to be wary of his rights. I have consorted so much of late with my cousin of Weiderbach, this self-denying knight of Rhodes, that martial thoughts will obtrude even on the brain of one peaceful and homebred as thy neighbor and penitent. The abbot bowed and smiled like one who gave full credit to the speaker's words, while a by-play arose between the wandering and houseless knight, the abbe, and the brothers of Limburg. In this manner did a few minutes wear away, when a flourish of trumpets announced that the expected banquet awaited its guests. Menials lighted the party to the hall in which the board was spread, and much ceremonious form was observed in assigning to each of the individuals the place suited to his rank and character. Count Emic, who in common was of a nature too blunt and severe to waste his efforts in superfluous breeding, now showed himself earnest to please, for he had at heart an object that he knew was in danger of being baffled by the most practiced artifices of the monks. During the preliminary movements of the feast, which had all the gross and all the profuse hospitality which distinguished such entertainments, he neglected no customary observance. The robust and sensual abbot was frequently plied with both cup and dish, while the inferior monks received the same agreeable attentions from Albrecht of Weiderbach and Monsieur Latouche, who, notwithstanding it suited his convenience to pass through life under the guise of a churchman, was none the worse at board or revel. As the viands and the generous liquors began to operate on the physical functions of the brothers, however, they insensibly dropped their masks, 
and each discovered more of those natural qualities which usually lay concealed from the casual observation. It was a rule of the Benedictines to practice hospitality. The convent door was never closed against the wayfarer, and he who applied for shelter and food was certain of obtaining both, administered more or less in a manner suited to the applicant's ordinary habits. The practice of a virtue so costly was a sufficient pretense for accumulating riches, and he who travels at this day in Europe will find ample proofs that the means of carrying into effect this law of the order was abundantly supplied. Abbeys of this particular class of monks are still a frequent occurrence in the forest canons of Switzerland, Germany, and in most of the other Catholic states. But the gradual and healthful transfer of political power from clerical to laical hands has long since shorn them of their temporal luster. Many of these abbots were formerly princes of the empire, and several of the communities exercised sovereign sway over territories that have since taken to themselves the character of independent states. While the spiritual charge and the mortifications believed to characterize a brotherhood of Benedictines were more especially left to a subordinate monk, termed the prior, the abbot, or head of the establishment, was expected to preside not only over the temporalities, but at the board. This frequent communication with the vulgar interests of life and the constant indulgence in its grosser gratifications were but ill-adapted to the encouragement of the monastic virtues. We have already remarked that the intimate connection between the interests of life and those of the church is destructive of apostolical character. This blending of God with mammon, this device of converting the revealed ordinances of the master of the universe into a species of buttress to uphold temporal sway, though habit has so long rendered it familiar to the inhabitants of the other hemisphere, and even to a large portion of those who dwell in this, is, in our American eyes, only a little removed from blasphemy. But the triumphs of the press and the changes made by the steady advances of public opinion have long since done away with a multitude of still more equivocal usages that were as familiar to those who existed three centuries ago as our own customs to us at this hour. When prelates were seen in armor leading their battalions to slaughter, it is not to be supposed that the other dignitaries of this privileged class would be more tender of appearances than was exacted by the opinions of the age. Wilhelm of Venlu, known since his elevation as Bonifacius of Limburg, was not possessed of all that temporal authority, however, which tempted so many of his peers to sin. Still, he was the head of a rich, powerful, and respected brotherhood that had many elodial rites in lands beyond the abbey walls, and which was not without its claims to the fealty of sundry dependence. Of vigorous mind and body, this dignified churchman commanded much influence by means of a species of character that often crosses us in life, a sturdy independence of thought and action that imposed on the credulous and timid, and which sometimes caused the bold and intelligent to hesitate. His reputation was far greater for learning than for piety, and his besetting sin was well known to be a disposition to encounter the shock between the powers of mind and matter, as both were liable to be affected by deep potations and gross feeling, a sort of degeneracy to which all are peculiarly liable who place an unnatural check on the ordinary and healthful propensities of nature, just as one sense is known to grow in acuteness as it is deprived of a fellow. The abbot loosened his robe and threw his cowl still farther from his neck, while Emic pledged him in Rhenish cup after cup, and by the time the meats were removed and the powers of digestion, or we might better say retention, would endure no more, 
His heavy cheeks became flushed. His bright, deeply seated and searching gray eyes flashed with a species of ferocious delight. And his lip frequently quivered as the clay gave eloquent evidence of its enjoyment. Still, in his voice, though it had lost its rebuked and schooled tones, was firm, deep, and authoritative. And ever and anon he threw into his discourse some severe and pointed sarcasm, bitefully scornful. His subordinates, too, gave similar proofs of the gradual lessening of their caution, though in degrees far less imposing. We had almost said less grand than that which rendered the central excitement of their superior so remarkable. Albrecht and the abbe also betrayed each in his own manner, the influence of the banquet, and all became garrulous, disputative, and noisy. Not so with Emic of Hartenburg. He had eaten in a manner to do justice to his vast frame and bodily wants, and he drank fairly. But until this moment, the nicest observer would have been puzzled to detect any decrease of his powers. The blue of his large leaden eyes became brighter. It is true, but their expression was yet in command, and their language courteous. Thou dost but little compliment to my poor fair, most holy abbot, cried the host, as he witnessed a lingering look of the prelate whose eyes followed the delicious fragments of a wild boar from the hall. If the knaves have stinted thee in choice of morsels, by St. Benedict, but the mountains of my chase can still furnish other animals of the kind. How now? I pray thee mercy, noble Emic. Thy forester hath done thee fair justice with his spear. More savory beast never smoked at table. It fell by the hand of young Burkhold, the burger of Durkheim's orphan. Tis a bold youth in the forest, and I doubt not his will one day be a ready hand in battle. Thou knowest him, I mean, father, for he is often at thy abbey confessionals. He is better known to the prior than to one so busy with worldly cares as I is the youth at hand. I would fain render him thanks. Hear ye that, varlet, bid my head forester appear. The reverend and noble abbot of Limburg owes him grace. Dost thou say the youth was of Durkheim? Of that goodly town, reverend priest, and though reduced by evil chances to be the ranger of my woods, a lad of metal in the chase, and of no bad discourse in moments of ease. Thou claimest hard service, cousin of Hartenburg, of these peaceful townsmen. Were they left freely to choose between the ancient duty of our convent and the stirring life thou leadest the artisans, we should have more penitence within our walls. The fealty of Durkheim was a long-mooted point between the corporation of Limburg and the house of Leinigen, and the illusion of the monk was not thrown away upon his host. Emic's brow clouded, and for a moment it threatened a storm. But recovering his self-command, he answered in a tone of hilarity, though with sufficient coolness. Thy words remind me of present affairs, Reverend Bonifacius, and I thank thee that thou hast put a sudden check on festivities which were giddy warm without an object. The count arose and filled to the brim a cup of horn, elaborately ornamented with gold, drawing the attention of all at table to himself by the action. Nobles and reverend servants of God, he continued. I drink to the health and happiness of the honored Wilhelm of Venlu, and the holy abbot of Limburg, and my loving neighbor. May his brotherhood never know a worse guide, and may the lives and contentment of all that now belong to it be as lasting as the abbey walls. Emic concluded the potent cup at a single draft, 
in order to do honor to the mitred monk, there had been placed by the side of Bonifacius a vessel of agate, richly decorated with jewelry, an heirloom of the house of Linogen. While his host was speaking, the looks of the latter watched every expression of his countenance through gray, overhanging, shaggy brows that shaded the upper part of his face like a screen of shrubbery planted to shut out prying eyes from a close, and he paused when the health was given. Then, rising in his turn, he quaffed a compliment in return. I drink of this pure and wholesome liquor, he said, to the noble emic of Linogen, to all of his ancient and illustrious house, to his and their present hopes, and to their final deliverance. May this goodly hold and the happiness of its lord endure as long as those walls of Limburg, of which the Count has spoken, and which were his loving wishes consulted, would doubtless stand forever. By the life of the emperor, learned Bonifacius, exclaimed Emic, striking his fist on the table with force, you as much exceed one of my narrow wit in wishes as in godliness and other excellences. But I pretend not to set limits to my desires in your behalf, and throw the fault of my imperfect speech on a youth that had more to do with the sword than with the breviary. And now, let us to serious concerns. It may not be known to you, cousin of Weiderbach, or to this obliging churchman, who honors Hartenberg with his presence, that there has been subject of amicable dispute between the Brotherhood of Limburg and my unworthy house, touching the matter of certain wines that are believed by the one party to be its dues, and by the other to be a mere pious grace to the church. Nay, noble Emic, interrupted the abbot, we have never held the point to be disputable in any manner. The lands in question are held of us in sockage, and in lieu of bodily service we have long since commuted for the produce of vines that might be named. I cry you mercy, if there be dues at all, they come of naught else than night service. None of my name or lineage ever paid less to mortal. Let it be thus, Bonifacius answered more mildly. The question is of the amount of liquor, and not of the tenure whence it comes. Thou sayest right, wise abbot, and I cry mercy of these listeners. State thou the matter, reverend Bonifacius, that our friends may know the humor on which we are madly bent. The Count of Hartenberg succeeded in swallowing his rising ire, and made a gesture of courtesy toward the abbot as he concluded. Father Bonifacius rose again, and notwithstanding the physical ravages that excess was making within, it was still with the air of calmness and discipline that became his calling. As our upright and esteemed friend has just related, he said, there is truly a point of a light but unseemly nature to exist between so dear neighbors, open between him and us, servants of God. The counts of Linogen have long considered it a pleasure to do favor to the church, and in this just and commendable spirit it is now some fifty years that, at the termination of each vintage, without regard to seasons or harvest, without stooping to change their habits at every change of weather, they have paid to our brotherhood. Presented, priest. Presented, if such is thy will, noble Emic, fifty casks of this gentle liquor that now warms our hearts towards each other with brotherly and praiseworthy affection. 
now. It has been settled between us to avoid all future motive of controversy, and either the better to garnish our sellers or to relieve the house of Hartenburg altogether a future imposition that it shall be decided this night whether the tribute henceforth shall consist of one hundred casks or of nothing. Buyer lady, a most important issue, and one likely to impoverish or to enrich, exclaimed the knight of Rhodes. As such we deem it, continued the monk, and in that view parchments of release with all due appliances and seals have been prepared by a clerkly scholar of Heidelberg. This indenture, duly executed, he added, drawing from his bosom the instruments in question, yieldeth to Emic all the abbey's rights to the vines in dispute, and this wanteth but his sign of arms and noble name to double their present duty. Hold, cried the Chevalier of the Cross, whose faculties began already to give way, though it was only in the commencement of the debauch. Here is the matter might puzzle the Grand Turk, who sits in judgment in the very seat of Solomon. If thou renderest thy claims, and my cousin Emic yieldeth double tribute money, both parties will be the worse, and neither possessed of the liquor. In a merry mood, it hath been proposed that there shall be the trial of love, and not of battle between us for the vines. The question is of liquor, and it is agreed, St. Benedict, befriend me, if there be sin and the folly, to try on whose constitution the dispute of liquor is the most apt to work good or evil. Let the Count of Hartenburg give to his parchment the virtue that hath already been given to this of ours, and we shall leave both in some place of observation. Then, when he alone is able to rise and seize on both, let him give the victor's cry, but should he fail of that power, and there be a servant of the church ready and able to grasp the instruments, why let him go, and think no more of land, that he hath right merrily lost? By St. John of Jerusalem, but this is a most unequal contest, three monks against one poor baron in a trial of heads. Nay, we think more of our honor than to permit this wrong. The Count of Hartenburg hath full right to call an equal succor, and I have taken thee, gallant cavalier of Rhodes, and this learned abbe, to be his chosen backers. Let it be so, cried the two in question. We ask no better service than to drain Count Emic Sellers to his honor and profit. But the Lord of the Hold had taken the matter, as indeed it was fully understood, between the principles to be a question on which depended a serious amount of revenue for all futurity. The wager had arisen in one of those wild contests for physical and gross supremacy which characterize ages and countries of imperfect civilization. For next to deeds in arms and other manful exercises, like those of the chase and saddle, it was deemed honorable to be able to undergo the trials of the festive board with impunity. Nor should it occasion surprise to find churchmen engaged in these encounters. For independently of our writing of an age when they appeared in the field, there is sufficient evidence that our own times are not entirely purified from so coarse abuses of the gown. But Bonifacius of Limburg, though a man of extensive learning and strong intellectual qualities, had a weakness on this particular point for which we may be driven to seek an explanation in his peculiar animal construction. He was of powerful frame and sluggish temperament, both of which required strong excitement to be wrought up to the highest point of physical enjoyment. And neither the examples around him nor his own particular opinions taught him to avoid a species of indulgence that he found so agreeable to his constitution. 
with these serious views of a contest to which neither party would probably have consented, had not each great confidence in himself as a well-tried champion, both Emic and the abbot required that the instruments should be openly read. The discharge of this duty was assigned to Monsieur Latouche, who forthwith proceeded to wade through a torrent of unintelligible terms that were generated in the obscurity of feudal times for the benefit of the strong, and which are continued to our own period through pride of professional knowledge, a little quickened by a view to professional gain. On the subject of the true consideration of the respective releases, the instruments themselves were silent though nothing material was wanting to give them validity, especially when supported by a good sword or the power of the church, to which the parties looked respectively in the event of flaws. Count Emic listened warily as his guest the abbe read clause after clause of the deed. Occasionally his eye wandered to the firm countenance of the abbot, betraying habitual distrust of his hereditary and powerful enemy, but it was quickly riveted again on the heated features of the reader. This is well, he said, when both papers had been examined. These vines are to remain forever with me and mine, without claim from any grasping churchman, so long as grass shall grow or water run, or henceforth they pay double tribute, a tax that will leave little for the seller of their rightful lord. Such are our terms, noble Emic, but to confirm the latter condition, thy seal and name are wanting to the instrument. Were to the latter to be written by a good sword, none could do the office better than this poor arm, reverend abbot. But thou knowest well that my youth was too much given to warlike and other manly exercises befitting my rank, to allow much time for acquiring clerkly skill, by the holy virgins of Colne. It were, in sooth, a shame to confess that one of my class in these stirring times had leisure for such lady games." Bring hither an eagle's feather, hand of mine never yet touched aught from meaner wing, that I may do justice to the monks. The necessary implements being produced, the Count of Hartenburg proceeded to execute the instrument on his part. The wax was speedily attached and duly impressed with the bearings of linogen for the noble war a signet ring of massive size, ready at all times to give this token of his will. But when it became necessary to subscribe the name, a signal was made to a domestic who disappeared in quest of the Count's man of charge. This individual manifested some reluctance to perform the customary office, but as there were just then a clamorous dialogue among the party at table, he seized the moment to examine into the nature of the document and the consideration that was to decide the ownership of the vineyard. Grinning in satisfaction at a species of payment in which he held it to be impossible Lord Emick could fail to acquit himself honorably, the dependent took the hand of his master, and accustomed to the duty, he so guided it as to leave a very legible and creditable signature. When this had been done and the papers were properly witnessed, the Count of Hartenburg glanced suspiciously from the deed in his hand to the indomitable face of the abbot, as if he still half repented of the act. Look you, Bonifacius, he said, shaking a finger. Should there be a flaw or doubt of any intention in this our covenant, sword of mine shall cut it. First, earn the right, Count of Linogen. The deeds are of equal virtue, and he who would lay claim to their benefits must win the wager. We are but poor brothers of St. Benedict, and little worthy to be named with warlike barons and devoted followers of St. John, but we have a humble trust in our patron. By St. Benedict, it shall pass for a miracle if thou prevailest, shouted Emic, yielding the deed in a burst of delight. 
Away with these cups of agate and horn, and bring forth vessels of glass, that all may see we deal fairly by each other in this right manly encounter. Look to your wits, monk. By the word of a cavalier, your Latin will do little service in this dispute. Our trust is in our patron, said Father Siegfried, who had already done so much honor to the banquet as to give reason to believe that, in his case, the fraternity leaned upon a fragile staff. He never yet deserted his children, when fairly enlisted in a good cause. You are cunning in reasons, fathers, put in the night, and I doubt not that sufficient excuses would be forthcoming were you pushed to justify service to the devil. We suffer for the church, was the abbot's answer after taking a bumper in obedience to a signal from his host. We hold it to be commendable to struggle with the flesh that our altars may flourish. As soon as executed, the two deeds had been placed on a high and curiously wrought vessel of silver that contained cordials and which occupied the center of the board, and more fitting cups having been brought, the combatants were compelled to swallow draft after draft, at signals from Emic, who, like a true knight, saw that each man showed loyalty. But as the conflict was between men of great experience and the species of contention, and as it endured ours, we deem it unworthy of the theme to limit its description to a single chapter. Before closing the page, however, we shall digress for a moment in order to express our opinions concerning the great human properties involved in this sublime strife. It has been the singular fortune of America to be the source of numberless ingenious theories that, taking their rise in the other hemisphere, have been let loose upon the world to answer ends that we shall not stop to investigate. The dignified and beneficed prelate maintains there is no worship of God within our land, probably because there are no dignified and beneficed prelates. A sufficiently logical conclusion for all who believe in the efficacy of that self-denying class of Christians. While the neophyte in some lately invented religion denounces us all in a body as so many miserable bigots devoted to Christ. In this manner is a painstaking and plain-dealing nation of near 14 millions of souls kept, as it were, in abeyance in the opinions of the rest of mankind, one deeming them as much beyond as another fancies them to be short of truth. In the fearful catalogue of our deadly sins is included a propensity to indulge in excesses similar to that it is now our office to record. As we are confessedly Democrats, dram drinking in particular has been pronounced to be a democratic vice. It has been our fortune to have lived in familiarity with a greater variety of men, either considered in reference to their characters or their conditions, than ordinarily falls to the lot of any one person. We have visited many lands, not in the capacity of a courier, but staidly and soberly, as becomes a grave occupation, setting up our household gods and abiding long enough to see with our eyes and to hear with our ears, and we feel emboldened to presume on these facts in order to express a different opinion, amid the flood of assertions that has been made by those who certainly have no better claim to be heard. And, firstly, we shall say that, as in the course of justice, an intelligent, upright, single-minded, and discriminating witness is perhaps the rarest of all desirable instruments in effecting its sacred ends. So do we acknowledge a traveler entitled to full credit, to be the mortal of all others the least likely to be found. The art of traveling, we apprehend, is far more practiced than understood. To us, it has proved a laborious, harassing, puzzling, and oftentimes a painful pursuit. To divest oneself of impressions made in youth. To investigate facts without referring their merits to a standard bottomed on a foundation no better than a habit. To analyze and justly to compare the influence of institutions. 
climate, natural causes, and practice, to separate what is merely exception from that which forms the rule, or even to obtain and carry away accurate notions of physical things, and, most of all, to possess the gift of imparting these results comprehensively and with graphical truth requires a combination of time, occasion, previous knowledge, and natural ability that rarely falls to the lot of a single individual. One assumes the task prepared by acquaintance with established opinions, which are commonly no more than prejudices, the result of either policy or of the very difficulties just enumerated. And he goes on his way, not only ready but anxious to receive the proofs of what he expects, limiting his pleasure to the sort of delight that dependent minds feel in following the course pointed out by those that are superior. As the admitted peculiarities of every people are sufficiently apparent, he converts self-evident facts into collateral testimony, and faithfully believes and imagines all that is concealed on the strength of that which is obvious. For such a traveler, time wears away men and things in vain. He accords his belief to the last standard opinion of his sect, with a devotion to convention that might purchase salvation in a better cause. To him, Vesuvius is just as high, produces the same effect in the view, and has exactly the same outline as before the crater fell. And he watches the workman disinterring a house at its base, and goes away rejoicing at having witnessed the resurrection of a Roman dwelling after 1,800 years of interment, simply because it is the vulgar account that Pompeii was lost for that period. If he should happen to be a scholar, what is his delight in following a Cicerone, a title assumed by some wily servitore di piazza, to the little garden that overlooks the Roman Forum, and in fancying that he stands upon the Tarpian Rock? His faith in moral qualities, his graduation of national virtue, and his views of manners are equally the captives of the last popular rumor. A Frenchman may roll incontinently in the Grade de Paris, filled with an alcohol inflammable as gunpowder, and in his eyes it shall pass for pure animal light-heartedness, since it is out of all rule for a Frenchman to be intoxicated, while the various Tyro knows that the nation dances to a man. The gallant general, the worshipful alderman, the right honorable adviser of the king, may stammer around a subject for half an hour, in St. Stephen's, in a manner to confound all conclusion and generalize so completely as to baffle particularity, and your hearer shall go away convinced of the excellence of the great school of modern eloquence, because the orator has been brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. When one thoroughly imbued with this pliant faculty gets into a foreign land, with what a diminished reverence for his own does he journey? As few men are endowed with sufficient penetration to pierce the mists of received opinion, Fewer still are they that are so strong and right as to be able to stem its tide. He who precedes his age is much less likely to be heard than he who lingers in its rear. And when the unwieldy body of the mass reaches the eminence on which he has long stood the object of free comment, it may be assumed as certain that they who were his bitterest deriders when his doctrine was new will be foremost in claiming the honors of the advance. In short, to instruct the world, it is necessary to watch the current and to act on the public mind like the unseed rudder, by slight and imperceptible variations, avoiding, as a seaman would express it, any very rank shear, lest the vessel should refuse to mind her helm and go down with the stream. We have been led into these reflections by frequent opportunities of witnessing the facility with which opinions are adopted concerning ourselves, because they have come from the pens of those who have long contributed to amuse and instruct us, 
but which are perfectly valueless, both from the unavoidable ignorance of those who utter them and from the hostile motives that gave them birth, to that class which would wish to put them in a claim to Bantan, by undervaluing their countrymen, we have nothing to say, since they are much beyond improvement, and are quite unable to understand all the high and glorious consequences dependent on the great principles of which this republic is the guardian. Their fate was long since settled by a permanent and wise provision of human feeling. But presuming on the opportunities mentioned, and the long habits of earnest observation in the two hemispheres, we shall conclude this digression by merely adding that it is the misfortune of man to abuse the gifts of God. Let him live in what country or under what institution he may. Excess of the description in question is the failing of every people, nearly in proportion to their means. Nor are there any certain preventatives against a vice so destructive, but absolute want or a high cultivation of the reasoning faculties. He who has accurately ascertained how far the people of this republic are behind or before the inhabitants of other lands in mental improvement and moral qualities will not be far from the truth in assigning to them a correspondent place in the scale of sobriety. It is true that many foreigners will be ready enough to deny this position, but we have had abundant opportunities of observing that all those who visit our shores do not come sufficiently prepared by observation at home to make just comparisons, and what we have here said has not been ventured without years of close and honest investigation. We shall gladly hail the day when it can be said that not an American exists so long to himself as to trifle with the noblest gift of the Creator but we cannot see the expediency of attaining an end, desirable even as this, by the concession of premises that are false. End of Volume 1, Chapter 6 Read by Joel Kendrick